Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Air Force shifts its cyber thinking as it stands up a new service and an emphasis on resilience across the energy security landscape. It's Monday, November 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A programming note, the Daily Scoop podcast will observe Veterans Day this coming Friday. You'll get a new show each day this week through Thursday, then a new Daily Scoop podcast again Monday, November 14th. Today, a conversation around cyber defense and resilience. AFSIA Bethesda hosted its Energy, Infrastructure, and Environment Summit at the National Press Club Thursday. My thanks to them for inviting me to host a panel with Mittal Desai, the Chief Information Officer at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Brian Epley, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department, and Venus Goodwine, Director of Enterprise Information Technology at the Air Force. To start the discussion, Venus Goodwine explains how a big change at the Air Force changed how the service thinks about security. With the start of the Space Force, the Air Force now operates as a department with two services. So that's unique for us. The Navy's been doing it for a while. We're now almost three years old doing the, the department. And so when we think about zero trust, we're thinking about all of the different use cases across two services that we have to address. Um, you know, rather it's dealing with our mission partners. And so how do I make sure that they have access and data sharing can happen between us? Um, and, and how do I also make sure that, you know, when I'm talking to warfighter downrange, and so as a CIO of a military department, you have to think about how do you push all of those capabilities that are typically business, but to the tactical edge. And so when we approached Zero Trust, it was just that. It was taking a look at what are all the different use cases. And so, of course, we started different pilots. And which particular pillar did we want to start with first? We then looked at, let's just start with first those things that are already invested in within our organization. You know, we've always had Comply to Connect. DOD made that a requirement so that we could understand whatever devices we're trying to access our network. We know that they met all the requirements. And so for us, like many other agencies, we look within first and built upon that. And again, just addressing the different use cases that we had to address, again, sharing with different partners, our coalition partners, but also making sure that at the tactical edge that we can address those issues as well. So you have um, multiple layers because mm -hmm. you have the Air Force mm -hmm. uh, strategic vision that yes. the team that I just outlined pursues. Mm -hmm. And there are broader agency-wide things that come from John Sherman's office that yes. you have to work through also, correct? Absolutely. And so what's important about that too, and for us, originally the data, the CDO, the chief data officer did not work within the OCIO, the office of the CIO, but we made that organization change as well because realizing, and we all know this data is the new perimeter. And so how do I make sure that that data is tagged properly and so that I can have either the role-based or the attribute-based processes in place to understand who has access to that data? And so that's important for us as well. Brian, you're the uh, deputy, principal deputy chief information officer for Ann, and she talks uh, about the broader security posture, but regarding zero trust in particular, what, where does that stand at energy, and, and what are the, how, how are you going about implementing that in your agency? There's a lot of different flavors of it from what I've heard. There are. Um, so the department is uh, a blend of uh, partners under a larger umbrella mission-wide. So I think it's important to point out that it's not 
uh, Ann and my office, the office of the CIO. Um, we're uh, in some cases the tip of the spear, but most of the time we're behind the scenes supporting our partners, whether it's the department element, a national lab, and just talked about the Power Marketing Administration. Um, so what I'm trying to point out, Francis, and, and to all of you, is that it's, it's a, a breadth and depth effort. You mentioned multi-layer mm -hmm. to, to Ven uh, Venus. Um, and, and I think that is critically important because it's got to be a coordinated effort. Um, I, like that, I like that terminology, breadth and depth. It's three-dimensional. It is. The way sure. that you describe it. And, and I wonder how, how that applies, how do you connect that concept then to the things that Ann just talked about? So that's our day job. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ann. Um, <laughs> so our day job is connecting those dots uh, that I just pointed out. So those, those department elements, our partners are what we're doing. But our, our, our partners are not limited to the Department of Energy. Um, it's it's for it's it's all of you Air Force yeah. and beyond um, and I think that's a key theme hopefully everyone takes away today is the collaboration um, but what I I think it'd be remiss if I didn't point out so uh, Zach uh, is from our INL Idaho National Lab they're leading the charge in a particular area that's one dimension we've got 16 other labs doing the same thing um, so that's what I mean by the the depth and breadth of, of what's happening there your question, if I heard it correctly, Francis, how do we connect those dots? Yep. Um, while, while Zach is leading his, his mission and Ann and I are leading ours, um, we need to find what that common thread is. Today, a common theme that you pointed out is, is cybersecurity and the risk associated with that. Um, on top of that, though, uh, another day job for many of us is the executive orders. Uh, and that is in support. ZTA was just that, right, um, to help us uh, align, I think, the framework, and that's a, a, a dot connecting aspect of, of your question, I think, Francis. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think it goes that far, and the reason I mean that is that we all struggle with discrete resources, whether it's dollars, bodies, and time. Um, so what we have to focus on, and, and Mattel and I had a chance to talk as well, and I'd love to pull you into this, how can we find those broader uh, partnership opportunities? Um, we have existing vehicles, we have existing challenges and problems. If we come together, we can solve these things together. I don't have any pride in ownership, um, personally or professionally for the department, but if they've already solved this, or you as partners in industry have already solved this, that's how we're able to address the discrete resources in time. So, Mattel, I want to come back to the zero trust question, but before we get too far afield of that, Brian, what, do you have an idea of what that marketplace of ideas looks like that allows all of you to share what you know with each other. Uh, and Matal and Venus, I want to get your ideas on that too. But Brian, since you brought it up, why don't you go first? What, what's the construct under which the exchange among agencies, the exchange with industry, the exchange with your partners in the private sector that you deal with, all of that, what, do you, what does that look like? What do you think would be the most successful way to build that? So I had an answer in mind, but that last part, uh, most successful, that's the operative term. Uh -huh. uh, I, I think we're all seeking that, but I think it's, it's forms like this. Um, you know, uh, Mattel and I were just talking about a $10 billion CBOS uh, contract that we share. Those are examples where we're combining requirements and solutions. Um, but I think it's up to us to create those, those opportunities and lean into where that success may find. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's very fluid. Uh, things are changing uh, very, very quickly. So um, 
the success is going to be in, in the partnerships that, that we establish. Matal, you look like you're itching. Yeah, well, I think, uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Matal Desai. I have the honor of serving as the Commission CF, Federal, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission CIO. Um, there's, there's already been a good start of established kind of forms, right? So as a small agency CIO, we have small agency councils. At the cabinet levels, there are CIO councils and even CISO councils, right? What, when I took this role over in two, two and a half years ago, being a first-time CIO, I, I was, I'm a cybersecurity uh, background by trade, uh, leveraging those vehicles, meeting with other CIOs to look at commonplace problems was a way that we could uh, scale real quick, right? So if we were implementing a new architecture, new services, other agencies have done that. And be able to share that knowledge across um, my counterparts has been very useful for us to be able to scale very quickly on some of our overall enterprising initiatives. Um, as Brian alluded to, you know, we are an independent agency of, of uh, a regulatory body, but we have a lot of connections with DOE. Uh, we, we roll up in many instances from a cybersecurity reporting standpoint. We are leveraging an enterprise-wide CBOS contract that provides us a contracting vehicle that's a little more flexible, scalable, and for us to be able to adapt to change quickly, we can jump on that vehicle to execute our initiatives. Working with DOE proper, we've been able to leverage that, that contract, something that we didn't even know we had. But that was really through in organic conversations, organic meetings that we could set up. And then leveraging the partner base. So when we talk about the big system integrators or even our, our partners of the services that we use, uh, we've leveraged and tied into, you know, what's the best way to implement this at, from a small agency perspective? I know a counterpart has done this in the past. How do we take that? and scale it within our environment and be able to take the lessons learned so we don't get tripped up and we can execute on delivery faster. So that's what you just described there, you are leveraging something you didn't know you had. That's kind of the end state that I'm wondering, how do you get beyond these kind of ad hoc conversations to, I mean, it sounded like you kind of lucked into that. In, in one sense, but I think the, these kinds of forms organically create relationships yeah. for us to be able to go from here. I will tell you right after this meeting, I will probably be sending an email to Brian <laughs> to set up schedule meetings. And that's been even the support from Anne, right, as she came on board. And for us to be leveraging these vehicles, setting up standing meetings. But during the pandemic, when we had to shift to a hybrid working environment, there are a lot of things we had to figure out really fast, mm -hmm. right? How do you get collaboration content tools working really fast. How do you deliver new laptops to employees that are no longer coming into the building? That's where we worked with our partners to figure out, okay, we know that the operations section in DOE has done something like this. Can we leverage that, right? They've come in to assist us in multiple, multiple instances. We've worked with our partners to scale up because they know that another agency has done that as well. Venus, you have a unique perspective on this, at least to my knowledge, because mm -hmm. you were on the civilian side before you went to the Air Force mm -hmm. at the Agriculture Department. Now you're on the Pentagon side. What does the, as we're talking about this structure and this idea exchange, does it look different inside the building than it did in the, on the civilian side of government? Absolutely. And, and the, what I will tell you, my answer to that is culture. Because, you know, in Department of Defense and all the military services and then the fourth estate agencies, we work within our bubble. Oh, we have no problem sharing there. It's almost a competition between the male depths who gets there first and then they're willing to share backwards. But what does not happen well is Department of Defense with the federal civilian agencies. And I know that from experience because I work, you know, of course, I was DOD and I went civilian. I went back and I said, you know, they're doing this over there. And really, 
it was like, yeah, but, but we're going to do it over here. And so that's a cultural change that we must address. And, and so I'm able to do that from the seat where I sit within the office of the CIO. Then the other thing is, is our acquisition laws. It makes it almost so taboo to have that public-private partnership with the industry because if you say something, it's like, oh, that's going to be a protest, or you've given them information, you didn't give everybody. And so somehow we have to figure out how do we have this relationship one with another you know, and still maintain that integrity and tell our acquisition bubbas that it's okay that I talk to them and learn, mm -hmm. you know, um, but that doesn't happen. So changing the culture, I think, and addressing the acquisition, the way that it operates today is going to be um, key for us. And again, of course, these type of events, you know, on the DOD side, mostly a lot of us are dealing, you know, with like this AFCA side, you know, but act I act on the civilian side, I love participating in that. The, we don't do that as much. And so we need to kind of cross those barriers and with conversations you know, like this, and as I start to reach back into my old network, I think I can help to bridge some of that as well. I appreciate that indulgence on that idea exchange idea, uh, or idea exchange concept, because um, it, it, every specialty, every area of study and work across the government seems to struggle from that. How, how do we all know what we all know so you're not, as you alluded to, both of you, reinventing the wheel. Um, Mittal, I want to come back to the zero trust concept that I started with Brian and Venus on and what that looks like for you at FERC. Yeah, so obviously with the executive order, that kind of spun into things very quickly in respect to how are we implementing zero trust strategy across the pillars, right? Um, what we had to scale fast really quick was we started looking at introspection and inventory of our assets online. Who, what's on the network, who's on the network, and how long they're on the network. And so we really focused on the identity pillar in an in, in immediate sense to be able to clean that up, build the visibility that we had, and then apply the proper security controls in place. Uh, with the advent of the pandemic and, and increasing the hybrid working environment, we had to scale fast on how to provide those solutions in a, in a, in a multi-hybrid environment. Uh, use of inherent technologies that we had available to us, we were able to kind of implement the controls in a way that, you know, while you want to access primary services, but what you also have to attend your, you know, your child's soccer game, we can give you that level of service. But we also know where you are, when you're, where you're at, and how long you've been onto that service. Yeah. That has been the start of our journey, right? Because Zero Trust is going to be a marathon. You're going to keep going. The big thing for us is that as a CIO now, we have modernization efforts that have taken underway. We have a lot of legacy equipment. We're moving into a replatforming and re-architecting to a cloud-based work set. We have to overlay federal requirements. If you think of zero trust, IPv6. So what's the right balance, right, of, of implementing the right level of requirements by also enhancing the user experience and also making good on commitments that we have to our program office constituents? I normally don't like to ask a question and then go down the line, but I think <laughs> in this case it makes the most sense. Um, because, again, you all seem to touch on this idea of the executive orders and the interactions therein. And I wonder how you, I'll start with you, Mittal, this time. How do you stay focused on the benefits of not just zero trust, but whatever the instruction is from above? How do you stay focused on the mission benefits and not just conforming to whatever the letter of the structure is that you have to make sure that you do all of these things, whatever they may be? It's a complicated tangle, yeah. right? Um, and I think what we have tried to strive on, for the longest time, um, 
And when I took over this role, the agency has been starving for a level of innovation. We've done a lot of good work, but I think we were at a point where we needed to excel some of our commitments. And so, you know, what we've taken a really focus on is, you know, the user experience. We want to provide a user experience. I always joke to my team, I want the TurboTax model. Point, click, get an outlook, right? Simple services that any user can use at any time. Um, we have worked very hard to overlay where it makes sense to protecting our systems and assets. You know, threats are going to be constant and frequent, and they're going to be sophisticated. So what is the right line from a risk acceptance standpoint or a risk tolerance standpoint that we can put into place? So what we've done as we market out or as we plan out projects, you know, we overlay the customer experience, overlay the security or federal requirements in place, look at the compliance requirements, and then we look at the ROI, what makes the sense. And then we'll phase it out, right? It may take a little bit longer to get all the commitments in place, but if I can deliver faster agile services to my consumer base, that's what we're gonna do. While ensuring that we're gonna protect our assets in our systems in a, in a, in a pragmatic manner. Uh, Brian, uh, again, how do you stay mission focused when you have compliance, very clear, very aggressive compliance goals that you have to hit? Um, there's, there's not a, you know, a recipe for that success that you, you asked, Francis. Um, but I, I think the key terms that Mattel just pointed out is, is the balance. Uh, balancing between the, uh, well, let me, let me pause there. Something that, that is underpinning everything we're talking about here is just plain risk management across the board. Whether it's mission, cyber, EO, regs, funding, all the above. It's, it's risk management um, as, as table stakes. So with, with that, I think we have to evaluate um, whether it's ROI or the value of the level of effort that goes into these things. And it's not a no or a not now, but it's a sequencing and in terms of those priorities and, and how we align those um, with, as I mentioned earlier, the discrete resources. But um, just to, to take a, a quick pull off, um, we're all familiar with what happened over the last, I don't know how many years it is now, we're calling it a pandemic. Um, somehow we were able to be responsive and manage risks that came with that. And I would say that in a lot of cases our organizations accelerated some of the work that we did there. It now falls under the CTA pillars that Mattel just talked about, and I'm sure Venus will. Um, that helped us accelerate those things. But what I'm trying to illustrate there is that we did that without an executive order. We did that. We rolled up our sleeves. We identified what we needed to do to keep our workforce productive and still push on that mission. I think that behavior and our ability, we got a little bit of a, a, a track record, um, has given us, um, I'm not going to say a playbook, uh, but at least a, a run at how we're going to tackle. Because uh, ETA is just one of many EOs. And the executive orders aren't going to stop. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll tie that back and then maybe can, you know, hand it off to Venus. I think that um, the success factor is how we look at um, our, our peers and partners to say, all right, this matters to me. Who do I think that matters to? While Mattel and I are still under the, you know, energy umbrella, um, there's a, a, a Venn diagram, a smaller cross-section. And I think we need to identify that where, where some of those, those priorities have already been identified and where some success has already been uh, marched to. 
Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. I appreciate that. Venus, you were nodding so enthusiastically as your fellow panelists were talking. I hope they didn't take all your ideas. They did. No, um, absolutely. You know, here's what I, what I think. So first of all, when COVID happened, what we did was took risk immediately. He said, you know, everyone's going home and for our livelihood, we had to accept risk we would normally not accept. We can't go back. That, because what that showed us is that it was okay, right? Because our mission still continued and some will tell you very well and that's why individuals don't wanna come back to work is <laughs> because they say, I can do this very well at home. And, and, so, and so for us, we said, okay, if I'm willing to accept that risk, now when I look through the lens of zero trust, remember Google, it took them 10 years? I don't have 10 years to try to figure this out. So what do I do, as you talked about, Natal, in this phased approach, but deliver capability while I'm getting to that destination? So you talked about ICAM and starting with identity. You know, everyone knows I can do ICAM without zero trust, but not the other way around. And so we decided, let's focus on that pillar, because as I mature that, the zero trust will benefit from that. Data is the same way. If mm -hmm. I start to work on data governance and data tagging and data standards, that helps my organization as a whole, but then so does zero trust. So zero trust isn't just this thing that I stop doing everything else. It's really complementary to the things that I'm already doing and the investments that I've already made. And so the other thing about that, you talk about balance. Yes, I have executive orders, but I have this big DOD on top of me as well that has their modernization efforts that I must also adhere to both operationally and from a compliance perspective. And so how do I balance those? I need to make sure that the requirements line up. What is the requirement for the thing that I need to do and who benefits from it? And what's a little bit different when you're in a MILDEP as well is um, RA6 which is from our operations side, our warfighter side, is separate you know, on the Air Force side from my CIO. So it's a little different there that I am just from the CIO perspective providing capabilities that are used at the tactical edge. Same in the Army, you know, they have a G6 and then they have a CIO in the Navy and the others are the same. So we have a little bit of separation between while I'm building zero trust and they're still fighting the war you know, or supporting Ukraine, so it's not that much balance for me because I have two different organizations, I have two different missions that's doing that. So understanding that as well. But I want to touch on something that you talked about too, if I may, um, user experience. You know, of course, on the civilian side, we talk customer experience because, you know, most of our services for the citizen public. But user experience for us is imperative for the warfighter, right? I cannot, you know, so when I'm delivering, you know, user experience, I'm thinking, how is it that I'm going to make sure that the capabilities I'm providing are not limiting their productivity because their lives depend on it, right? And, and so our user experience approach was a little different because we talked about how do we operationalize user experience? You know, when a warfighter kicks on, you know, clicks on a link and the transactional path is so long because there's so many hops, how do I think about that? Because then it becomes for us a recruitment and retention issue. Because you know, within our organizations, we have four or five different generations in our organization. You know, in those 18, 19 years old that sign up in the Air Force are saying, I'm working with the Air Force because they are the best and this is a world-class organization. Well, if they come in and I give them a computer that does not work, I know you've all seen Fix My Computer. Right? Oh, you brought it up before I could. Well, and the reason that's so important is because that's what they're saying. They're saying, wait a minute. There's a gap in your say do. You said that I was going to come and work for the WorldCast organization. I got here and you have some computer that is 
It's faster for me at home, but I won't let them use their home computer to access resources. Again, the tie to zero trust. Yep. And so it becomes imperative for us. So we tied that to this is now a recruitment and retention issue. If you want the best, you know, only 1% of the population serves in the military. So if you want to maintain that 1%, then we need to make sure that we give them experiences that match what we told them they were going to do when they went to the recruiter's office. So since you took my Fix Our Computers reference, <laughs> um, I do want to follow up on something that you said Google took 10 years to <laughs> figure out zero trust and you don't have 10 years. But back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, the knowledge transfer and knowledge sharing, what you should need 10 years to figure it out. You should be able to do it simultaneously as you just described to working in Ukraine and so on and so forth. Well, can I then add to you, well, then there needs to be an address of what's in the room about technical debt. Old software term, right? That, you know, you made a decision to deliver capability before it was ready, you created tech debt. We've done that in our organizations as well. We've done that with the infrastructure because we've not decided to invest. We pushed investments off. You mentioned IPv6, right? So we've pushed those investments off because we didn't have to do that now, but that creates a tail and a bill of tech debt. Then we also have tech debt with our resources, with our individuals, because why? The first budget that gets cut in the organization is training. So now you wonder why you don't have the skills for the emerging technology that you want to deploy. I want to do software-defined networking. I have to contract that out because I don't have that organic skill because I have not built that organically within my organization. Mm -hmm. So now we have to think about, let's look at how we're making these investments and who's making the decisions about the investments that we need to make in IT because IT, as COVID proven, is no longer a cost center. It is an imperative. Yep. And if we didn't learn anything from the pandemic, it is that. You cannot do business without it. I uh, would call everyone's attention to a blog post on the Labor Department's blog that Gundeep Alawali have posted about technical debt mm. and how they've addressed it there, yeah. um, which uh, I think he make, made a pretty convincing argument for the success that they've had there. Um, we have microphones here and here if you would like to ask questions of the audience. So I encourage you to do that now. Um, we still have a decent amount of time, but I want to give you plenty of time. I don't want this just to be a conversation amongst the four of us. So please feel free to make your way to the microphone. And as soon as anybody wants to ask a question, I'll be happy to call on you and, and have you join the conversation. Um, Mittal, um, you talked about the council structures earlier and the way at, for that information exchange. What do you take out of those conversations that fit directly with what we're talking about today about cybersecurity resilience particularly, but the subject of security of your network more broadly? Yeah, I think we take, I mean, outside of the organic relationships and having an ongoing dialogue, I think for us as a small agency, a lot of the initiatives we want to, because we have some pent up demand for modernization, I have to scale fast. Um, and for implementation for our needs. And so I think as we have these conversations, especially with my counterparts, I like to big borrow and steal as much as I can, right? When we talk about um, specific design documents, architecture documents, implementation from an organizational change management, right? Because technical implementation is always the easier part. Getting folks to buy in and, and introduce technology and use it effectively, how they have done that at a larger scale that we can scale down as a small agency to implement, those are the tactical kind of 
artifacts, if you will, that we use consistently. I will tell you, I probably use that small agency I would counsel like it's my personal distribution list um, to be able to take services in, requirements, and people are willing to help, right? Because I think what's important is that we're all kind of sitting with the same common challenges, right? There's a limited budget, or we need to scale something. We all, we're dealing with a common requirement. How do we do that quickly? And so I think that's how we have done it at the, at, at the, at the FERC to be able to use it. And what I've kind of encouraged my management structure below me is to meet your, you know, kind of meet your counterparts at different agencies. So at DOE, you know, my director of operations knows the, you know, the associate CIO for enterprise services, things like that, that we can kind of organically have the conversation, but then tactically take information sharing and make it more of a tangible output for us to deliver services to our customer base. Um, Brian, you have a little bit of a leg up on some of the civilian agencies at Energy in that you have um, Inflation Reduction Act money um, support. Uh, everybody always is interested, well, not you personally, <laughs> but, but, but I get it. Um, how does that influence the way that you're able to do some of the things that you want to do, either timeline-wise or scope-wise or whatever? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, everyone's wondering about the bipartisan infrastructure law, Inflation Reduction Act, and all this money. Where's it going to go? Um, unfortunately, I'm not seeing it. Um, and that's not a dig at anyone, but uh, I'm trying to point out some of the topics that we talked about here and maybe connect the dots with uh, some innovation uh, and, and workforce. So the bill and IRA money, at least within DOE, Department of Energy, is supporting our mission directly. Um, and I think that hopefully you all realize that our national labs are the, uh, um, the bedrock of R&D for Department of Energy. That's where all of our science and innovation you know, stems from. Um, so that's where they become, I think, dependent, maybe not reliant, but dependent on the OCIO, the Office of the CIO relationship and our partnership so that we're able to uh, address commodities and the table stakes of just IT and play a higher order of, of, of uh, support in the OT side of things that are supporting that mission. Um, I think that the other topic that I wanted to bring up was the, the workforce. I think that the bill and IRA money is, uh, that funding is supporting that, where we can um, surge uh, skilled workforces, whether it's cyber, science, data, all the things that my colleagues have talked about today, but other areas that are supporting all of our mission. Um, I think that there's a, what I'm describing is that shift. Um, and it requires not only OCIO to look at that balance, but to look at the collective balance in terms of the roles that we play together to, to accomplish those things. Hopefully yes. that addresses it for you. You got it. Thank you very I'm much. I'm to help you spend the money. <laughs> I don't have it. I'm sorry. You can pass well, the hat. That doesn't mean he won't help you spend it. Okay, okay. That's um, true. Yeah. Sir, if you just tell us who you are and who you're with, and if your question's directed to one of the folks in particular or the entire panel, let us know that. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, my name is Ron Thomas. I'm with uh, WSSC. It's a local Welcome. organization here. I had to laugh. I'm an Air Force vet, and uh, <clears throat> when... I forgot your name already, Air Force. Ms. Goodwine. Ms. Goodwine. When you said the recruiter lied to people who enlist, <laughs> I can identify with that. <laughs> if, if, what are you, the, the uh, type of computer 
that we use as, as a civilian, and then we get into the armed forces and we're, we're generations behind. What are you doing to address that? So, uh, great. Thank you very much I'm for the going question. To, thank you. I'm going to fix your computer. Um, so one, it is definitely um, an, an imperative from our secretary to address that because no kidding, it is a recruitment and retention issue because airmen are saying, I am not going to come to work at a place that if they don't care enough about what is in front of me that I use every day, then what else am I missing? Because you think they're at a level, at a unit level, that they don't understand the decisions we're making you know, at the corporate level. So what we're doing about it, first, we established a standard based on our user experience performance metrics because we do performance monitoring that says you know we need to have a baseline standard that you can no longer buy the cheapest computer at the end of the year with fallout dollars um, so we stopped that practice um, and said no it is now a policy that we've set a standard that every computer um, will be purchased the other thing that we decided to do was making sure that we don't wait to the end of the year for for a number of reasons supply chain reasons for one that we don't wait to the end of the year to, to, to purchase these devices as well. It now has to be a planned event. Um, and so we changed our policy where you know our refresh rate was four or five years. That's way too long. I mean, how many of you keep a computer for five years? Right? Don't, don't admit if you do. You don't, right? And so I shouldn't have to do that. But the most important thing I think that we're doing is what Zero Trust is allowing us to do, that now we have a, the ability that you can take your home computer with your CAT card and you can access your resources from home. I don't even need to give you a computer. I now created what we call Desktop Anywhere as well, so I could, you can bring your desktop to you. So we've now gotten creative in how we're providing these computing capabilities you know, to all of our airmen and guardians. Mm -hmm. How do you do that, though, and maintain the resiliency of the network that we've been talking mm -hmm. about throughout the course of this conversation. Yep. Because we've always done cybersecurity and comply to connect is important. So rather you're connecting to my resources from, from a government furnished equipment or your own, I have to understand that when you connect, do you have access? Do you have the requisite knowledge, um, uh, skills, or even the clearance if required to access that resource yeah. and that we monitor that. And that's where performance monitoring comes into place that is really becoming more prevalent today that we never thought about. The blinky lights that we often monitor as IT operations kind of went by the wayside. Well, that's now prevalent again because mm -hmm. it's important that I understand from a you know um, confidentiality, integrity, and availability standpoint that Hmm. If I don't have availability, because when you click on a link, it doesn't work, that makes you less productive, efficient, effective, or efficient. That matters. And so now it's affecting now your user experience. It's affecting rather you will stay and not um, leave the organization. So it's like a circle of life now. And before, it was in a siloed way, and we're just not doing that anymore. Sir, thank you for the question. Appreciate that. Um, Brian or Mittal, do you want to add anything on to what Venus talked about? There? I think the laptop is a primary example. I mean, we've, we've had old laptops in the environment. We've, what we've kind of coined the phrase is operational hygiene. That's part of our operational hygiene, right? And so what that means is that, you know, we spent so much time doing Q4 buys of things. We have now created a contracting vehicle, so if you think of BPAs, to be able to, on the spot, if I need to buy new, new equipment or scale up, because you know, we have dam safety inspectors that need to go out and be able to have mobile devices, we can do that, right? Um, 
when I talked about a little bit about customer focus, to me this is very important, right? Yeah, we run the operations, we keep the lights on, but what's at the end point when you turn it on? How easy is that to use? How easy is it to, is to connect? So we spend a lot of time and budgeting now. We are trying to move toward a laptop cycle refresh of every two to three years if, that, if we can do that. Um, we're, in a, we're in a massive upgrade as we speak, uh, but commodity IT is something that we want to provide. It's not only just the laptop that we're thinking about, right? Some of the things that we're looking at for a user base is now a take-home program. What does your environment look like at your home? What does your environment look like in the office? So, you know, during the pandemic, we, we coined it the Chick-fil-A line uh, where we had folks coming in to pick up monitors, you know, to be able to provide, you know, a monitor at home with a laptop, a monitor in the office with a laptop. Um, and so we had folks driving in, my uh, support staff literally putting in a monitors into their trunks because that was the safest way to do it. And so now we're scaling up in our budget cycles to make sense now. We know that the footprint based on workplace flexibilities will probably be a lot more you know, telecommuting, work, uh, remote type of work. So now I have to extend my IT environment and that commodity IT to the home base. And that's what we plan to do. The challenge with having a Chick-fil-A line is there have to be 30 cars in it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We don't, we don't do Sundays. Well, I was just going to say that was the other problem is you can't be there on Sundays. Ma'am, welcome. Thanks for uh, stepping up to ask the question. Uh, thank you. Michelle Ellis with AIS, and I'll be the elephant, not my size, but in the room, no, no. Um, to talk about um, and ask the question, how are you utilizing uh, your cloud solutions for some of the things you've talked about? Um, and yes, I know it's infrastructure, and just so um, I, I hear the blue blinky lights a lot. And just yesterday I had a conversation with a customer about mainframe and modernizing and, and making some adaptions to that. So how are you utilizing those type of cloud solutions to get you the things that you're talking about here? Your resilience, your user experience, um, certainly around zero trust. And it's for the group. I, I can go first. Take um, it away. So, uh, you know, like many agencies, we have a lot of legacy systems and we're in the process of doing um, a replatforming, re-architecture of our core business suite of applications. So what does that mean for us? We're, we're shifting everything to the cloud. Uh, the reason why we're doing it, I don't want to have a data center anymore, right? As much as I can reduce that footprint, reduce my energy footprint on-prem makes the most sense. But quite frankly, the output of that is the value benefit, high availability of systems, don't have to take systems offline to patch anymore, right? Disaster recovery becomes a, 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 a something that we don't have to really worry about. You know, moving it to an ACF location and then spinning things up, no more. It's available online. But more importantly, it's going to allow me to make my user base locations independent, right? They can access those services at any point in time, anywhere that we deem that's acceptable. So we're, we have just started the journey. Uh, I'm proud to say that uh, one, we have, we're doing this in waves. Our first wave is uh, coming up uh, in production very soon. It's one of our more important core suite voting applications that will be a cloud-based platform. Something that was 15 years old that we're using is finally going to be on a, a low-code platform in the cloud uh, that is very user-friendly as well. Brian? Thank you, Francis. Um, so this is a, a sweet spot for me. Um, I, my, my professional background is enterprise IT operations, so this EIE summit is kind of a trifecta. I recently came to Energy from uh, Environmental Protection Agency, so 
uh, all three of these are coming together. Uh, your question about cloud um, and a little bit of the summary of what we've talked about today, whether it's a pandemic or ZTA or the executive orders, these are all accelerators in terms of how we're managing risk, but also improving the products and services and the user experience that we deliver. Um, and uh, to answer your question point blank, uh, just like Mattel described at FERC, uh, we're moving our physical footprint away. I can't say that it's zero, uh, but we're exploiting and leveraging uh, cloud resources, um, whether it's similar to the desktop anywhere that uh, Venus described, um, but that whole IT commodity stack should move into that space. Why? Well, it's not to say that Coop and DR or those fundamental components that are mission-centric are gonna go away, but that's a good way to describe how our norms, our collective norms are all changing. It's answering the question in terms of cloud and moving there, but Venus mentioned low code, uh, no code factories. That's a new norm. Um, and hopefully we're able to just offset and wipe right down a lot of that technical debt. Um, those accelerators are going to allow us to accomplish our mission and improve the value of the things that we've talked about and didn't talk about today. So. Venus? Oh, this is exciting. Um, so for us, a couple of things. So first, um, the CIO, we publish our strategy. It is public. You can take a look at that. And what you will see in that strategy is one of our major lines of effort is cloud and how we're going to do cloud transformation and cloud adoption. And so one of the things we're doing, a couple of efforts. One is we have initiated what we call race to the cloud. And so we have signed um, research agreements with a couple of cloud service providers to help us accelerate our movement to the cloud. Why? How many of you really understand the fully burdened cost of operating in a, a data center? Probably not, right? And so when a mission owner says, I can't go to the cloud, it's more expensive, I can stay in the data center, it's cheaper, because they don't understand the fully burdened costs, you know, the pipes and the power, and not they just think, I just need my system administrators to keep my application up, no. So when we started to show them, this is the fully burdened cost, now compare that if you use the cloud, because now your cybersecurity is inherent in the platform because you're there. And so trying to have that analysis with them is really helping us to really um, teach them to adopt cloud. So one of the things, so that's race to the cloud. We have set a number and a goal that we will move applications to the cloud. And the reason why that's important is because when I say that we need to give capabilities to the tactical edge, when my warfighter's at the tactical edge and needs to access an application, he can't come back to the gov cloud. He needs to be able to access a, a commercial cloud that's right there in the region where he is. And so having that data sovereignty worked out in advance so that we can do that, it's imperative for our mission. And so that's one of the things that we're doing. Even updating our endpoints, using Windows for Update for Business is key because I don't have to pay or use any of my um, tier one to update laptops. You know, just do it in the cloud. And so really there's a lot of reasons where we leverage the cloud. And the third thing I'll talk about is just creating applications, having these low code, no code environments um, within our, so that we can have citizen coders. That because I have a lot of smart airmen that say, I can do my job better if I had just this one tool. So we create a platform for them to do that. Now that takes a lot of governance in order to do that. So it's part of our innovation ecosystem where we can have our airmen and guardian create applications in a platform, in a controlled environment, and then once approved, it becomes part of our own app store. So we're leveraging the cloud so that we can be more effective, more efficient.
Venus Goodwine of the Air Force with Natal Desai of FERC and Brian Epley of the Energy Department. My thanks again to AFCIA Bethesda for inviting me to participate in the Energy, Infrastructure, and Environment Summit at the National Press Club on Thursday. You can read more about that event in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It will help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow with Megan Mayo of the Science and Technology Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.